Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Crime and Conspiracy. The case I have for you today took place in the once breathtakingly beautiful city of Ketty, California. 14-year-old Sheila Sharp returns home from a sleepover on the morning of April 12, 1981. Immediately upon opening her front door, she realizes that something isn't right. Her eyes struggled to adjust to the display before her, and then she realizes that there, in the living room floor, lay three bloody and brutalized bodies of her mother Sue, brother John, and friend Dana. the Sharp family moved from Connecticut to Ketty, California. Together, there were six of them. Single mother Glenna, who went by her middle name Sue, who was 36 years old. Sons John, Rick, and Greg were 15, 10, and 5. And daughters Sheila and Tina were 14 and 12. Sue had recently separated from husband James and moved to Ketty because of her brother Don, who lived nearby. She wanted a new support system, and she restarted in this new chapter in her life, and she didn't want to be all alone, even if it meant renting a cabin in a run-down resort in a rural area. The Ketty Resort was a collection of 33 rustic cabins, which could be rented out long-term for around $170 a month. It was surrounded by fishing and pine-studded trails and was a favorite place to visit for hikers. In the 1980s, times were relatively rough for Sue. She supported her family off of food stamps and a stipend she received for being enrolled in a federal education program and a $250 monthly check she received from James, who was a Navy veteran. But this didn't faze her nor her children. They quickly embraced their new home and the kids loved to play in the nearby ponds and rivers. April 11, 1981 was an ordinary day. Sheila planned to spend the night next door with a friend. John, the eldest son, planned to travel to Quincy, the next city over to hang out with a friend, Dana Wingate. And Sue had agreed to let Ricky and Greg, her youngest sons, invite their friend Justin over for a sleepover. John and Dana would return to Cabin 28 around 10 p.m. that same night, presumably retiring to John's basement bedroom. Sheila was the only family member who didn't spend the night in the house due to her sleepover, but the following morning, Sheila would discover the three bodies and run to her neighbors in cabin 27. When she notified the Seabolt family in cabin 27, they ran to notify the lodge at the Ketty Resort because they didn't have a home phone. Jan Albin, the co-owner of the Ketty Resort, notified the police and assured the now very frantic community that they were on their way. After the police were called, Sheila remembered that her two youngest brothers, 10-year-old Greg and 5-year-old Ricky, had to still be in the cabin since she didn't see them. Along with Justin, who had spent the night, they went back to the cabin where they miraculously found the boys alive and unharmed, the Seabolt family helped the three boys out of the bedroom window they were in to avoid walking through the grisly crime scene. Seemingly, they had slept through the entire massacre. How's that even possible? 
Deputy Clement would be the first officer on the scene, and nothing could have prepared him for what he was about to walk into. Now, I'm just going to warn you and let you know right now that the way that these people were murdered is very violent and very vicious, so continue at your own discretion. All three victims had been bound with electrical wire and medical tape before they were systematically bludgeoned to death with a claw hammer. It's also suspected that the victims were stabbed and strangled. Examinations later revealed that they had suffered blows from at least two different hammers of different sizes. In addition to being bludgeoned, Sue and John had been stabbed numerous times with a knife and their throats had been slashed. Sue also seemed to have been hit on the head with the butt of a rifle and she had defensive wounds on her arms indicating that she had put up a fight. She was found lying on her side by the living room couch and was nude from the waist down. She was gagged with a blue bandana and her own underwear, secured onto her face with medical tape and two rounds of electrical wire. Wires were also found around her wrist and ankles. She had been covered with a blanket and sheet that belonged to Tina, her 12-year-old daughter. John was found closest to the front door with his hands on his abdomen and taped tightly at the wrist with medical tape. His ankles were wrapped twice and tightly knotted with an extension cord, and his throat was slit. Dana was found on the floor beside his friend and his head badly damaged as though bashed in with a blunt object. He had also been strangled and his ankles were tied with electrical wires that wound around John's ankle so that the two were connected. A bent steak knife was found on the floor and a bloodied butcher knife and claw hammer were found sitting on a small wooden table near the entry into the kitchen. This attack was so vicious, investigators found blood on the ceiling and walls. It was also believed that the victims were placed where they were found. Blood was found on the boy's feet, indicating that they were mobile after being attacked, and Sue's body indicated that she was dragged or staged there, meaning that where they found their bodies wasn't where they were initially killed. Now, I can only imagine the pain Sheila was going through this day, which is why this part makes sense to me. After all of this is going on, investigators, police officers show up. She realizes that Tina is gone, her youngest sister. She quickly tells investigators as soon as she remembers that Tina wasn't in the house, she's gone, and that they need to find her. Members of the Plumas County search and rescue team scoured the Ketty area for the missing child, but to no avail. And an all-points bulletin was put out to Lassen, Butte, Sierra counties, and Reno asking to keep out an eye for Tina. I've posted pictures of the family cabin weapons found at the crime scene along with video links surrounding this case on Facebook at Crime and Conspiracy if you want to go check those out. And if you're wondering if why this sounds familiar, it's probably because they made a movie about it called Cabin 28. I haven't seen the movie. It got pretty bad reviews, but that doesn't take away from the fact that it was based on a true story. And I think it meant to do better, but I don't know. It was just one of those very bad acting kind of movies. But check it out for yourself. I'll put a link on it um, on, on Facebook, Crime Against Bracing. Okay, okay, back, back, back. Tina was described as having long blonde hair and of slight build. She was last seen wearing blue jeans and a blue shirt. 
The authorities also asked the surrounding counties to check the local hospitals to see if anybody had come in during the last 48 hours with knife injuries. They speculated that with such a violent attack, the killer or killers could have harmed themselves in the process. Now, with a quadruple homicide and a kidnapped victim, the FBI arrived on the scene. They pieced together the last known movements of the family. Uh, Do you remember that John and Dana went to Quincy for the day? Well, witnesses said that they saw John and Dana trying to hitch a ride in Quincy near the Gold Pan Motel. Their bodies found in cabin 28 indicate that they made it home that night, but how? And if they caught a ride, who drove them? The FBI moved quickly to try to find a motive, but quickly realized that that would become incredibly difficult to find. The Sharps had no enemy, they were rather new, and there wasn't anything indicating that they weren't liked or wanted in the community. Early in the investigation, robbery was ruled out as motivation since nothing from the cabin was missing other than Tina. The home did not indicate forced entry, though detectives did recover an unidentified fingerprint from a handrail on the back stairs. They also discovered that the cabin's telephone had been let off the hook and all of the lights had been shut off as well as the drapes closed. That sounds super freaking meditated. Investigators assumed that their murders had somewhat planned and had been done by two or more assailants, one of which had brought along a claw hammer and then used an additional hammer and two knives. But what really stumped the investigators was that no one heard anything the night the trio were murdered. Not even Greg, Ricky, and Justin, who were asleep in one of the bedrooms of the home. Like, not even, what, eight? 10 feet at most, or the neighbors who literally live 10 feet away. A couple who lived nearby would later tell police that they heard muffled screams and they stepped out of their cabin to see if they could see anything out of place and they couldn't, so they just went back to sleep. Like, why didn't y'all call the police? I don't know, but that's the only account or witnesses that ever came forward about hearing anything that night. But Back to the three boys who lived through this massacre and apparently didn't hear any of it. They would go on to be interviewed about what they remembered from that night. And Justin, the friend, first reported that he had slept through it all and that he hadn't witnessed anything. But later, he claimed that he had witnessed the murders from the bedroom door, but then recanted that statement and said that he just dreamt about the murder. Justin underwent hypnosis and described his dream in detail. He described two women in the home, one with a mustache and long hair, while the other had shorter hair and was clean shaven. He also said that one man had a pocket knife in his right hand and used it to cut Sue in the chest. This same man also had a hammer in the other hand. He also revealed what happened to Tina while under hypnosis. He said that Tina woke up and walked into the living room After hearing all the commotion, one of the men then snatched Tina and carried her through the kitchen and out the back steps. The man then returned to the cabin without Tina. The psychologist who evaluated Justin concluded that Justin had witnessed the murders and then, as a defense mechanism, converted what he actually saw into a dream. 
And though there was a lot of potential evidence at the scene that was collected, um, it wasn't very helpful because it was pre-DNA testing. So very little helpful information was found at the time. For the first few weeks of the investigation, the Plumas County Sheriff's Department had eight investigators working on this case, 24-7. They made a secret witness program to try to gain leads and release sketches of the two men described by John. The two men were allegedly also seen in the city of Quincy the week before the murders, and they had more than one witness to account for this. For the three years that followed, Ketty residents didn't feel safe anymore. Ketty was the kind of place where people didn't lock their doors, and unfortunately that changed. People wouldn't let their kids be out after dark, and they were no longer trusting their neighbors. It was speculated over the years that the killers had wanted to get to Tina for sexual purposes, and that that was their motive. Some of the locals clung to the hope that Tina was alive somewhere and being held hostage. In April 1984, a bottle hunter stumbled across human remains near Feather Falls, 30 miles from Ketty. A jawbone and several other bones were determined to belong to 12-year-old Tina. According to the medical examiner, Tina had died sometime after November 1st, 1981, six months after the Ketty murder. However, due to advanced decomposition, her cause of death could not be determined, but it's very probable that she was murdered. Immediately, two suspects were identified in this case before Tina was even found. The first was Martin Smart, the stepfather of Justin. Yep, one of the boys that was actually in the cabin during the attack. He actually lived a few doors down in cabin 26. The second suspect was his friend, John Bubedi, or Bubedi whatever, who cares, he's a freaking murderer, just kidding. At the time of the murders, Ketty had a drug problem, and Martin was one of the key players. On the night of the murders, both men, Martin and John, showed up to a local bar wearing three-piece suits and sunglasses. As you can imagine, this attracted a lot of attention to themselves. The local patrons, patrons, recollected that they were acting strange. They left the bar after a few hours when the co-owner changed the music from country to rock. And angrily, both men made a scene and left as to further draw attention to themselves. They went back to Martin's cabin where Martin called the bartender to complain and then returned to the bar to have a last drink. Now, both of these men had criminal records, and John also had ties to organized crime in Chicago. When Martin was questioned after the murders happened, he said that after that last drink, he went back home to sleep for the night. And the only thing he had to mention was that he misplaced a hammer. And if you're wondering, no, they never even arrested this guy because they didn't have any evidence against him. Not even after he literally said he was missing a hammer. So, as mentioned, this did not stand out of police officers since they had found several weapons in the home consistent with the murders and were convinced that they had all of the murder weapons. So, the question is, why would Martin want to kill Sue, his neighbor? Well, Sue allegedly used to counsel Martin's wife, Marilyn Smart, about leaving her husband because he was said to be abusive and was having affairs behind her back. Martin was an extremely 
jealous and possessive man. But so was Marilyn, his wife. Another rumor filling Ketty was that Sue and Martin were having an affair, and Marilyn found out and had her husband kill Sue. With no hard evidence against them, the men fled to Oregon, and Martin wrote a letter that wasn't discovered until the case reopened in 2013. I cannot make this up. He wrote, and I quote, to his wife, I've paid the price for your love, and now I've bought it with four people's lives. You tell me we are through. Great. What else do you want? Marilyn claimed to never have received the letter and was only made aware of it when the authorities presented it to her. But she would confirm that it was in Martin's handwriting. Other investigators speculate that it wasn't just Martin and John who did the slayings, but instead a number of local people. This would explain why no one heard anything or had additional information to provide. They were all just faithful witnesses. Another theory is that whoever picked up John and Dana and Quincy were responsible for the murders. Potentially, after the boys were dropped off at the cabin, the killers forced their way into the cabin or maybe even got invited in by the boys and killed everybody who was home and took Tina. Another theory is that the drivers weren't responsible at all. Instead, John and Dana walked into the slaying and became victims themselves. Before John and Quincy presumably hitchhiked back to the cabin, they had attended a party at the home of a well-known Quincy family where there was said to be illicit drug use. This could have refrained witnesses from coming forward because they didn't want to be associated with that party. The boys could have also been followed home by unknown men. The possibilities are sadly super limitless. Then, in 1996, a man named Robert Silveria was looked at as a potential suspect. He lived in the Plumas County in the mid-80s and was known as a courteous man who decorated envelopes with intricate drawings and, oh yeah, and was eventually arrested for at least 17 murders. Like, what? For 15 years, he had drifted through the United States on railroads, killing other drifters that came in contact with him he later confessed to a total of 28 murders including the Ketty murders but he would only be convicted for two of those in 2004 cabin 28 was demolished along with several other condemned buildings on the Ketty resort and in 2008 Marilyn Smart wife of Martin claimed in a documentary that she suspected her husband and friend John of committing the Ketty murders And in 2016, an anonymous counselor in Reno came forward with information that implicated Martin for the Ketty murders. Apparently, Martin had confessed to the murders while a patient just several weeks after they took place. He said that he wanted to clear his conscience and admitted to killing Sue and Tina, who at the time was still missing. He said, and I quote, I killed the woman and the daughter, but I didn't have anything to do with the boys. End quote. When the counselor asked about Tina Martin, he said that he had incapacitated her and later had to kill her because she was a witness. His alleged motive was that Martin believed that Sue was responsible for Marilyn wanting a divorce. But both Martin and John passed the lie detector tests during the original investigation and neither were ever arrested. And by the time this information surfaced, Both of the men had passed away. That is so freaking frustrating. 
the Department of Justice would dismiss the allegations made by the counselor as hearsay, which in other words means rumor. It doesn't stand in court, nor is it considered like valuable evidence. It's ruled out because it's like a he said, she said rule. Following this extensive investigation, the local sheriff's department had received a lot of complaints and criticism for doing a poor job in following up with leads and blotching the evidence in an initial investigation. Sheriff Greg Hagwood was a 15-year-old freshman when these murders happened. In fact, he even knew John Sharp and Dana Wingate. In 2018, 35 years later, Hagwood is a sheriff in Plumas County and in a position to order the case reopened. He said that the case was fragmented and had to rebuild the case from scratch. He said that it was a mess littered with missed opportunities, evidence lost or ignored, and if the right things had been done, it would have been solved within weeks of the murder. It took Sheriff Hagwood 10 days of combining all the evidence and going through boxes and boxes before he found an audio tape in an envelope that had never been opened. The cassette recording was a 911 call made from an anonymous man who asked if the body found three years later could be one of the victims of Ketty. The call was made on the three-year anniversary of the murders and the tape, for some reason, was never admitted into evidence. A few months prior to finding that tape, a tip actually led to the discovery of a hammer in a pond not far from the crime scene. It matched the description of the hammer Martin said he had lost shortly before the murders. He also did a DNA test on the strip of medical tape used to bind the hands and ankle of the victims and got a DNA match, that of a living suspect. And this was in like 2018. He also came to discover that just months after Tina's remains were found, an anonymous caller told the Boot County Sheriff's Office that they belonged to Tina Sharp before the authorities even confirmed that they were Tina's. The Sheriff's Office gave the original and backup copy of the recording of the anonymous caller to someone in law enforcement. Like, there's no name, there's nobody in specific, all they have is that they give it to someone. However, both the original and backup copies have disappeared. Hagwood has since identified six people of interest who are not Martin or John, who are now deceased, and he claims that he knows where all of these six living people are. He believes that the motive for the cabin murders were related to the abduction of Tina Sharp. They murdered everybody to kidnap her. No suspects have been publicly announced, and it seems like there's kind of been a halt on the case, which makes sense. It's like a 30, 40-year-old case now that's been cold for a really long time, but I'm hoping that this new evidence reveals the killer's responsible and justice can finally be served for the Sharp family. Sheila is still alive today and still fighting for an answer and hoping to bring justice to whoever did this to her family. Anyone with information is asked to call the Plumas County Sheriff's Office at 530-283-6360. Or tips can also be left online at www.secretwitness.com. I've posted pictures and links on Facebook at Crime and Conspiracy. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter. If you guys like this episode, please share with your friends and family and let me know what you guys want to hear in the future. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 